Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. Our second scripture reading directly follows this one. We're not going to be focusing as much on this text as the one as on the one that Judy read this morning. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of the Lord. So, for last week, we talked about a very, very well-known scripture passage. You all probably uh, remember that we were talking about, who was here? Were you here last week? Some people remember, kind of, maybe not. If you weren't, I'm looking at you. So, um, last week we were talking about the fact that Jesus was talking about sin and the evils of the human heart. And this week, we're talking about a less well-known scripture verse. This verse is very odd. It kind of doesn't really add up to what we know about who Jesus is. And in fact, as I break it down for you, you're probably going to be quite shocked at what you're reading. And so it's important for us to understand what he's saying, why he's saying it, because ultimately it's going to give us this much larger picture of who Jesus was as a human being. And that's really, really important today. We often talk about Jesus being God, but We don't often talk about Jesus being human, and this is a very, very human moment. So, Jesus, he finishes his discussion with these Pharisees, and he goes to a region of the world known as Phoenicia. Phoenicia, and in Phoenicia, he ends up going to a city called Tyre. Now, Tyre, it is located, right up there, he's going to circle it for you since we haven't quite got that technology down, but that's where it's located, is right up there in the corner. So, It was a Gentile city. And just so you know where we've been focusing most of our time, down at the bottom there, you're going to see that there's Nazareth, down at the bottom, and then Sephora, we've been talking about that, and then Tiberias as well, over to the side. And then up there in Capernaum, do you all remember what Capernaum is? That's where Peter is from. Um, And so this is the area that we tend to be talking about, but now we're going way up north, and that is a totally Gentile area, meaning it is, what, non-Jewish. There is nothing Jewish about this area. So, Tyre was a seaport. It was a place where all these ships would come from the Mediterranean, and they would come to this outlet right here, and they would unload all of their wares. When they excavated pieces of this in the ancient city, they found these warehouses all up and down the shore where they would store all of this stuff. And then from there, they would send it out all into the Middle East. Now, because there was so much commerce that came through this little, little area right here, 
this city became extraordinarily wealthy. And they were known not only for the wealth of the city, but they were also known for the production of an extremely rare and extraordinarily expensive purple dye derived from the murex shellfish, known as Tyrian purple. That is the murex shellfish, and that is the dye that would come out of it. Royalty would come from all over the ancient world to purchase this purple dye because they wanted to use it in the creation of their clothing. Tyr was also known as a place where you could go to have a good time. I once heard somebody refer to it as being like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. You would go there to indulge your every whim and desire. And that's a picture of some of the ancient ruins. It was a beautiful, beautiful city because they had so much money to be able to build it up. And of course, all this raises a really interesting question for me, which is, why is Jesus going to this city? I mean, he's a very holy man, right? That's what we like to talk about with Jesus. Why is he going to this city that is like Las Vegas? Seems kind of out of place, right? Well, I find it very interesting that Mark places his journey to Tyr right after he talks about the evils of the human heart. Almost as if Mark wants us to think about him testing himself. As a bumpkin from Nazareth, Jesus would have stuck out like a sore thumb. I want you to imagine in these ancient ruins seeing all these people. These are some of the wealthiest people in the entire ancient world. They would have been wearing the best clothes, the latest fashions. They would have been eating the best foods from all around the Mediterranean. And they would have been enjoying the finest entertainment that money could buy. Jesus, being a Jewish peasant, he would have been indistinguishable from the beggars in the streets of Tyr. Now, Mark, he tells us that he wants to go there because the crowds keep, keep basically preventing him from having any alone time. And so he goes to this city with the hope that that will happen. And Mark alludes to the fact that he can't even get away from his reputation up in this Gentile city. Now I'm going to tell you, that's, that's nice thinking right there, but the truth is, is that he might have been well known among the Jewish peasantry in Galilee, but I guarantee you in a metropolis like Tyre, nobody knew who Jesus was. They had no idea what he was all about. They had a lot of other things going on. Which, of course, calls into question whether or not this scene that we're reading today ever actually happened. I know I say that like every other sermon, right? About what happens in this scripture. But the truth is, this is what you have to look at when you start looking at this area of the world and you look at what happened. But for today, let's assume for the moment that it did happen. Let's assume that he did at some point in his ministry visit this place. Now, did he do it in the order that Mark says it? Maybe not, but let's just assume that he did. So he goes there, and if it's alone time he wants, it's alone time he's going to get, because nobody's going to know he's there, except for this one woman who finds out about his presence. And so she comes to him and she says, Sir, would you heal my daughter? She has an unclean spirit. Now, Mark tells us that this woman, she is of Syrophoenician origin. Now, the whole point in telling us that is because Mark wants us to understand this woman is not Jewish at all. She's got nothing to do with Judaism. Now, the last time Jesus healed somebody who was not Jewish was when he healed that man, Legion. Now, do you remember when I was talking about this, this guy, Legion? Now, Legion, he was a demoniac, right? He had all these demons. And what did I tell you, Legion, if we were going to diagnose him today, what did he probably have? Schizophrenia. Okay, so he has all these demons. And things don't work out so well for Jesus because when he heals this guy, he sends all those unclean spirits 
into this herd of 2,000 pigs who then go into the bank, off the bank, into the lake and drown themselves. So all these people who come out to see Jesus, they're excited that he healed Legion, but he totally decimated their food supply. I mean, these people, they eat pigs. Jewish people don't, but, you know, they do. And so they're kind of like, you know what? I think it's best if you just leave because you're really not doing us a whole lot of good. So the last time this happened, things didn't work out so well. And we can understand why Jesus might be a little resistant to the idea of helping someone. But he's not just resistant. He's straight up rude to this woman. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and feed it to the dogs. Now, just so we're clear about what he's saying here, the children in this analogy are the Jews, and the dogs in this analogy are the Gentiles. So Jesus is calling this woman a dog, which in today's world would be quite an insult, but back then it was even worse because the Jews, they didn't have dogs as pets like we do. They thought of dogs as being filthy creatures that carried disease with them. That's what he's calling this woman when he's calling her a dog. He's saying, you're a filthy creature that carries disease. Make no mistake about it, that is exactly what he is saying to her. Now, he's also trying to make a point in this, and he's saying that the blessings that God has, that first they need to go to all the Jewish people, and then the Gentiles, they can kind of fight over what's left and God's table. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, when he's looking at her, I mean, you could almost say that he's not looking at her as though she's a human being. I mean, he's so dismissive of her that we have to question whether or not this is the kind of Jesus that we're used to hearing about, right? I mean, you all know, when I'm up here, I'm preaching, I'm going up and down the aisle, and I'm telling you about how Jesus, he's this great guy who loves the poor, the destitute, the downtrodden. You all know that, right? That's what I say all the time. It's what you hear preachers say. Well, according to this, you better be the Jewish poor, the Jewish destitute, the Jewish downtrodden, or you're probably not going to get any help from Jesus, right? And this brings into question a whole other side to this, which is that when you look at the reason why he ends up healing this woman, he heals her because she has a witty comeback to his insult. She says, Sir, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. So she owns the insult. She's willing to sit there and say, I'm a dog, and I'm begging for scraps from God's table. And Jesus, he's so taken with this. He likes this so much. He's, he, by her humility to sit there and say that by definition of being non-Jewish, that she is less deserving of God's blessing, that he's willing to heal her daughter. But had she not come up with that witty retort, It doesn't seem like he was really going to do anything for her. So all of this calls into question something even bigger, which is to say there's other passages like this in the New Testament. This is the worst by leaps and bounds, but there's other passages like this. And so in which you wonder, did Jesus actually want non-Jews to be part of his movement? And some scholars have said that Jesus never intended for his movement to go beyond Judaism, that that's what he was trying to reform, and he never intended to make a new religion like Christianity where everybody was going to be included. Now, we don't know exactly how Jesus thought about this, 
But at the very least, we come away from this scripture passage knowing that Jesus can be a pretty mean guy, right? Who has very clear distinctions in his mind between who should and who should not be helped by God. Now, I want to keep on this for a second, as opposed to leaving it behind, because I think this is really important to examine this for us. Let's examine why he might have acted this way. So, I want you to put yourself back in the place. So, we're going back to ancient Tyre, and I want you to think about it, okay? He comes into this city, and it's one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world. He walks into it. It must have been like nothing he'd ever quite seen before. And I told you all in previous sermons that Jesus, he grew up witnessing huge amounts of inequality. As he was growing up, he watched as entire rural populations, entire farming populations, those were his people, as they descended into abject poverty because these cities, those cities that I pointed out to you, Sephora, Tiberias, as they popped up, his people ended up having to supply them with food. And as a result, they couldn't afford to eat anymore. And so, Jesus, he's in this city, and he sees all these people who have more money than they know what to do with. And he's thinking about his friends back home, his family, how they're suffering, and he's looking at all these people who have all this excess. And then this woman, she comes to him, and she's asking for his help. And she lives in the middle of all this excess, right? That's kind of where she is. Now, we don't know anything about this woman. We don't know who she is. We don't know whether she's wealthy or poor. We don't know anything about her except for where she comes from. And Jesus does something that is so human right here. He takes her and he puts her into this category of people who are part of the problem. Now, initially he dismisses her because why? What does he say she is? You're a Gentile and I'm not going to help you. But I don't think that's the real reason why he dismisses her. I think he dismisses her primarily because when he looks at her, he thinks of her as symbolizing Everything that is wrong with the system that has caused his people to suffer. He looks at her and he says, you are representative of that machine that is causing my people to suffer so much. Now, if you see somebody like that, somebody who you know is causing, or who you believe anyway, is causing people to suffer, are you going to help them if they want your help? No. You're not going to do that. You're not going to help them. And Jesus, what turns it around is that this woman is able, through owning the insult, to get, knowledge, to get Jesus to acknowledge her existence. Now, this is really brilliant how this happens. Now, like I said, I don't know if this actually occurred, but it's brilliant the way that this works. So, when Jesus calls her a dog, you have to realize what he's saying. He's saying, you are not worth helping. That's what he's saying. You are not worth helping. And by owning that insult, She's essentially saying, well, okay, I'm going to go there with you. I am a dog, and I need your help. Now, when she does this, what she does is so brilliant because she forces him to acknowledge her humanity. And if he doesn't do anything for her, right, if he chooses not to help her, then what does he do? He becomes part of the problem that he is criticizing in that situation. I like to think in this one moment, he actually comes to the realization, you know what? You are no different than all my friends and family back home who are suffering. Now, it took her pretending to be a dog for that to happen, but 
what he did was he was willing to acknowledge her, man, her humanity and he was willing to acknowledge her existence. Which leads us to an entirely different question. Which is, what does it take for us to acknowledge other people's existence? Why are we so willing to acknowledge some people while other people we blatantly ignore and fade into the background? Back in 2005, when I was an intern working out in California. I was at one of my first churches. I was in L.A., and I worked for the youth group. I was one of the youth group guys who basically, I worked, I was like literally the bottom of the pile. Like, <laughs> in, terms of, in, terms of that, in terms of that church, I was at the bottom. And so they said, you know what, we're going to take a mission trip this summer, and you know where we went? Chicago. That's where we came to. Came to Chicago. And we worked with a group called CSM, Center for Student Mission. Now, this summer, our, our youth group is actually going on a mission trip with CSM. And the cool thing about CSM, why I told TC about it, is because they expose you to all kinds of different types of poverty. So when we came out here in 2005, we were exposed to homelessness in the city. We were exposed to former gang members in the city. We were exposed to women who were fleeing abusive situations in the city. It was, it was a lot to take in, but we got all these different ways of dealing with it. On the last night we were there, though, they broke us into small groups. There's a group of eight of us. There's 60 people on this trip, so they broke us into eight. And they gave each of us $2 for dinner because they wanted us to go into the city and they wanted us to experience food deprivation. They wanted us to know what it was like to be homeless and to only have $2 for dinner. And they said, what we also want you to do before you eat, though, is go talk to random people. Talk to them about their opinions about poverty. Do they think poverty is a problem in the city? And what would they do about it if they did think it was a problem? And so we went into the city and we started talking to people, random people, all over the place. And what's fascinating is that we got all these different reactions. But the one I remember the most was this young man. He was sitting on the sidewalk. He was begging for money. And so I decided I was going to sit down next to this guy. So I sat down next to him. And we started talking. So you imagine that. He's on the ground. I'm next to him. And my group is standing around him. And so we got to know each other a little bit. I said, what's your story? He said, well, I was kicked out of my house when I was a teenager. He was a little older than I was at that time. And so he'd probably been on the streets for close to 10 years at least. He said, I've been moving from city to city just trying to survive. And I asked him, I said, what's it like being homeless? What's it like having to beg for money? And he said... It's really, really hard, actually. It's very dehumanizing. Because so many people, they just walk by me, and they don't even acknowledge that I'm there. They pretend like I don't even exist. And I remember as we were talking, these two women in business suits walked by us. And one of them said in a very sarcastic tone, loud enough that our whole group could hear it, she said, I guess we should be learning something from this. Now, we thought about that afterwards. We talked about that. And I think the reason why she said that is because we were actively choosing to acknowledge this man's existence when she had actively chosen to ignore him. And it made her feel guilty because she had made that decision. Now, I want to be clear. It's not necessarily her responsibility to acknowledge every stranger on the street, right? I mean... We can't be expected to do that. But it's interesting how it took her aback so much that she actually said something out loud about it. 
But this same woman, I guarantee you, when she went to the grocery store later on that week, and she was checking out with all of her groceries, she probably looked at the people on the cover of all those magazines in the checkout line, don't you think? Now, she doesn't know any of these celebrities, and yet she's willing to look at them and provide them with basic human decency of just acknowledging that they exist. So this raises a very important question in my mind. What's the difference between the man on the street begging and the celebrity on the cover of that magazine? Why are we so willing to acknowledge the one and not the other? Well, you could argue that the reason why we acknowledge the celebrity and not the beggar is because of the impact that the celebrity has on society, right? I mean, we tend to mimic a lot of what celebrities do. We, we mimic what they say, how they act, what they wear. I mean, we do a lot of what they do. But I don't think that's the reason why they're different. I think that's the impact that the celebrity has on society. The reason why they're different and the reason why they have that impact is because we, as a group, choose to acknowledge their existence. We choose to acknowledge that they are important. And the reason why we do this is because that is the same reason why we have acknowledgement in our lives. It's the same reason why we feel important in our lives is why we're willing to give it to them. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, the reason why you feel meaning in your life, the biggest reason why, is because there are certain people around you who are willing to acknowledge that your existence has meaning to them. Your life has meaning to them. This is so, so very important that you understand this. There is a very small circle of people, for most of us in here, who acknowledge that our life has importance. It's usually your family and a few close friends. If you were to take those people away, you would be no different from the beggar on the street. Because the difference between him and you is the fact that he has no one who acknowledges his existence. And so at our core, human beings find their value and worth in the value and worth that others see in them. The importance that you ascribe to yourself is based on the importance that other people ascribe to you. In other words, your validation of your own self is based on the validation that others give you. Now, we can sit here all day long and we could argue whether or not that is the way that it should be. I'm telling you that's the way that it is. That is how we deal with life. Our importance comes from other people. And so this brings us back to Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Follow me on this, because this is where it all comes home. So, go back to the place in your mind. Imagine, you're back in tear. And Jesus, he comes into this city, this very wealthy ancient city. And nobody there cares at all about what he has to say, about his teachings, about his healings. They don't care about him at all. And this one woman comes to him who does care. She wants her to he, she wants him to heal her daughter. So he chooses though, initially, what does he do? He treats her like the beggar who I met in Chicago. She he ignores that she exists pretty much. Says, I don't need to deal with you. You're a dog. In a sense, 
He is treating her the way the people of Tyre have treated him. And then she turns it around. And she forces him to acknowledge her existence. Because what she does is she changes Jesus' perception of her from a dog into a human being. She forces him to acknowledge that she is a human being. And that she deserves to be acknowledged. And I think that that's what this story is really all about. At its very core. This story is about how every single person deserves and needs to be acknowledged. And that the transformation that Jesus went through in this story is the same transformation we need to go through in our own lives. So often we talk about Jesus as being perfect, flawless, all this kind of stuff. But here, what this tells us is that Jesus had to undergo certain transformations in his own life. And that you have to undergo those transformations as well. You need to transform your perceptions of the people around you. I need to do it too. And the way that we start is by saying to ourselves, why am I so readily willing to acknowledge the existence of some people and not others? And then you step back and you say, you know what? Fundamental human dignity comes from being acknowledged. And when you choose to ignore certain people on the street, like that beggar, then you strip them of that basic human dignity. You rob them of the value and worth that they are owed as human beings. One of the proudest moments in my life was when I saw that young man and I acknowledged that he existed. I'm so proud that my group was willing to do that. I don't know where that guy ended up. I don't know where he is today. But what I do know is in that one moment, we gave him back a little bit of his dignity. And so my prayer for you today is that you might transform your perceptions of the world around you in the same way that Jesus transformed his perceptions. May you bring worth and value to the world by acknowledging those who are forgotten. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.